Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is prolific and best-selling historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto. Despite publishing on such diverse subjects as food and truth, it's clear that exploration and the Americas are subjects which hold particular fascination for him. He's published books on Columbus and Vespucci, exploration before Columbus, and a history of the Americas. And all these interests come together in his latest book, 1492, subtitled the year our world began. But much more than just a look at Columbus's voyages, the book draws the camera back to show what was happening around the world at the end of the 15th century, in Russia and China, Japan and Korea, Africa and the Americas. And this range of perspectives is pertinent because 1492 was the year when, according to Ernesto, world history ceased to be about divergence and began travelling in the opposite direction, towards ever greater convergence, the results of which are everywhere apparent today. There's an amusing moment in the book when Felipe quotes his history teacher at school, who wrote on the blackboard the following, 1494, Charles VIII invades Italy, modern world begins. I began by commenting that, while in the face of it, Felipe's assertion that 1492 was the year in which our world began was a comparable claim, in fact, he was asserting something quite different. Well, it's comparable. I mean, it's like everything's comparable to everything else and usually benefits from the comparison. I don't tool, you know, mind being told <laughs> that what I'm doing resembles in some ways the project of my despised school teacher. <laughs> and actually, it's a beloved school teacher, but in this respect, doing something pretty potty. What's different about my 1492 is that I'm not suggesting that there's that you can you can divide history into periods like this. I think it's you know kind of continuous and overlapping. And that every moment has its own modernity and that it doesn't make sense to speak of modern times beginning at a particular particular series of episodes, certainly not a particular uh, moment in the past. What I'm saying in this book is that there are features of the world we inhabit now, which are absolutely essential to it, and without which our experience would be unrecognisably different. And that they, that some of those features really do begin in 1492, uh, and therefore distinguish life after that date from life before it. I'll give two examples. Which are absolutely cosmically, cosmically significant. The first is the distribution of life forms around the planet. Until 1492, evolution had been on a divergent course, continent by continent, for literally scores of millions of years, probably 200 million years or so, ever since Pangaea split into the continents that we see around the surface of the planet today. Life forms have been growing apart from one another, separated by these intervening oceans. 1492, people begin traversing those oceans. No one's significantly been back and forth across the Atlantic or the, the Pacific until that may have been very modest and tentative voyages across the North Atlantic and in the high Middle Ages that possibly might have been, you know, the odd trans-Pacific voyage almost by accident, but nobody established regular communications to and fro across the oceans of the world until Columbus did it for the 
Atlantic strictly speaking in 1493 because he didn't find the route back until 1493 and he didn't even find the best route out until 1493. But, you know, roughly speaking, we can call it 1492. And that's when this worldwide exchange of biota begins, which recasts evolution on a convergent course. There we now have the same life forms, the same plants, the same animals, the same microbes all over the world in comparable climates. Now, that's a really big deal. You know, and that distinguishes life after 1492 from life for 200 million years before it. And my second example is the world distribution of, well, what people now call civilizations, or which are perhaps better said to be religions. In 1492, the as every schoolboy knows, the last Muslim-ruled kingdom in Western Europe is expunged when Ferdinand and Isabella conquer Granada. And in the same year, the victories, rather less known episode, or known episode, the victories of Muhammad Turayaskia, who conquers the empire of Songhai, guarantee that Islam is going to colonize the colonized sub-Saharan Africa, the forest belt beyond the Sahara. And almost at the same time, you get Christian missionaries converting the rulers of, of Congo, so, and, and Columbus going to America. So the world distribution of what become world religions, religions which previously had really been confined to their environments of origin, suddenly in this year overleap those environmental boundaries and become Islamic get pretty much, you know, the world map, the distribution between Christendom and Islam becomes predictable at that moment. You quite strongly contest the assertion that some Renaissance mindset has come into being. You you argue for for continuities of much older medieval chivalric modes of thought right into this period. Yes, I don't know whether, I, you know, I, my real source of inspiration is the, the truth or is kind of abhorrence of saying familiar things, predictable things. But I, I, I've certainly convinced myself that the Renaissance is basically a load of rubbish and I would much say the same thing of the, the Reformation. I suppose that's where I really part company with my old school teacher who you know, wrote Renaissance, beginning of modern times, because I don't think the Renaissance, such as it was, made very much difference to anybody. I see it as an acceleration of a you know, really quite long-standing medieval tradition of looking back to classical antiquity for models of thought and behavior, and um, the culmination of a really long tradition of uh, humanistic thinking and a refashioning of curriculum of educational institutions in Western Europe in a humanistic direction. All that was was going on. It had been going on for a very long time, and it would be going on for a very much longer time, but I, I can't see, you know, a moment which which deserves to be called the Renaissance. Indeed, you know, to that extent, I think most other historians would have to agree with me because, you know, now if you look over the work of historians, the, the late Middle Ages are full of renaissances. You know, you've got renaissances in practically every century from the 5th century onwards. And I'm, I'm also, of course, uh, very sceptical about the importance of the, 
the Reformation. I, I dare say a lot of people say, oh, yes, but, you know, Felipe teaches at Notre Dame at a Catholic university, and, of course, he'd want to belittle the importance of the Reformation. Um, but, I, I, I mean, honestly, without any partisanship or, um, I mean, there's no kind of, uh, I don't have any religious prejudices on this score. I think my, my views are shaped entirely by an objective honest reading of the facts. All things, you know, people traditionally ascribed to the, the Reformation, I mean, the beginnings of capitalism and the, the decline of magic and the uh, inspiration for the scientific revolution and the nation state. It's all nonsense. There's absolutely no connection between the Reformation and, and any of that. Alas, you know, as a Catholic, I have to admit that capitalism is just as much a Catholic vice as it is a Protestant vice. It's a human vice, and you, you find it in, in, in a lot of very different cultural contexts. There's nothing particularly in Protestantism that predisposes people to be capitalists, and there's no deficiency in Catholicism which prevents people from being capitalists. Same is true of the scientific revolution. I mean, actually, you know, most of the great scientific initiatives in uh, early modern Europe were created, launched in the minds of people who were Catholics or who were indifferent to religions. Protestants weren't disproportionately represented amongst um, scientists by, by any means. A nation state, I mean, that's again a, you know, basically these, well, there weren't really any nation states in any modern Europe anyway, but the, the autonomous sovereignty of the, the state is again a long standing development has been going on for a long time and owed everything to political culture and very little to, to religious culture. And the, I see the Reformation as part of a much bigger phenomenon. I mean, I think if you look at the world of the late Middle Ages and the 16th century, it's not so much divided between the Catholic and the Protestants, divided between the worldly and the godly. And the, basically the reformers, whether they were Protestant reformers or Catholic reformers, or indeed Orthodox reformers, were really all on the same side. They were contending with a a world that frustrated them because of its lack of godliness. They were contending, you know, with rural populations who are under-evangelized and riven with what we now call popular culture, but which they call superstition. And they were striving to communicate a more dogmatic awareness of Christianity to their inert and unsatisfactory and worldly fellow Christians. That's a really big story about religion in the early modern West and our, our distraction by really sort of rather petty divisions between Protestants and, and Catholics has prevented us from seeing that. Well, one of the other events that you write about in 1492 was the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. You write about that as, in a way, enabling the golden age of Spain. Can you say what the, what the, what the connections were there? Yes, I mean, obviously... One of the reasons for writing about the expulsion of the, the Jews is that it gives me an opportunity to do what I wanted to do technically with the book, which was write a, a kind of travelogue, a book about what it would be like to accompany the travellers of 1492. We weren't just Columbus. <laughs> There's also stuff in the book about you know, a Korean shipwreck victim in, in China, an Italian merchant who crosses the Indian Ocean, and um, 
and an Arabic or, 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 or Muslim expulsee from Granada who crosses the Sahara. There, there, there are lots of these travel stories going on. And amongst the most poignant and intriguing are those of Jews who are expelled from Spain and who traverse the Mediterranean just, you know, seeking somewhere to lay their, their heads. And you've got the sort of great story of um, Judah ibn Hayat who who he's expelled from from um, uh, Spain? He's imprisoned in Tlemcen. He's plague struck in Naples. You know everything happens. It's a story of Job. I mean, he even likens himself to Job, and he ends up at peace in the Jewish community in um, Mantua. So there is a sort of um, you know, appeal as a narrative device embedded in the story of the expulsion of the Jews, which greatly appeals to me. But, uh, you know, because I'm Spanish, I can't help make a point about the expulsion of the Jews, which is specific, uh, uh, specifically relevant to the history of, of Spain. It's usually said that the expulsion of the Jews wasn't only a crime, it was a mistake. You know, the, the state deprived itself of their wealth-creating talents, of their taxes of the great intellectual input which they'd made to Spain. But what these views fail to take into account is that, of course, most Jews stayed in Spain. It was only the minority who refused to accept conversion to Christianity who were expelled. So the total effect of this event wasn't so much to expel the Jews as to appropriate them and integrate them into the mainstream of Spanish life to reclassify them as Catholics and enable them to become full participants in Spanish society in a way in which, by their own choice, they hadn't formerly been. Obviously, you know, like every religious minority, they cultivated their own identity to some extent, inhabited their own ghettos and so on. So you've got this great expansion of the world of Spanish achievement and intellectual endeavor as a result of the incorporation of all these these um, Jews into it who you know I mean it's just a fact of history that Jews are disproportionately represented amongst people of talent in almost every society in which you find them and I suggest in the book that perhaps without this great infusion of Jewish brilliance into the Spanish mainstream you wouldn't have had the golden age of of Spain, you wouldn't have had the the era of unprecedented and unparalleled and alas ever since unrepeated oh. <laughs> you know, flourishing of the, the arts and and um, letters and just the magnitude of the importance and impact of Spain on the world that was true of the 16th and 17th um, centuries and you know I do think the facts bear this out because it, you know, it's very common finding amongst uh, students of Spanish art and literature in that period that a disproportionate number of the great achievements achievers were of Jewish parentage or ancestry. Now, Felipe, I wanted to ask you about wind, because you say at one point that you think historians, I'm paraphrasing, but historians are very good at producing hot air, but they're not paying enough attention to wind. And I certainly, for one, hadn't realised just how important prevailing winds are in the whole history of of exploration and, and navigation, and and navigation is so important to the themes of this book that I that I'm going to ask you to say a little bit more about wind. I'm not an environmental 
determinist, but it's it, it's just you know an inescapable fact that for the age of through the whole of the age of sail, which is pretty much the whole of human history, wind is the biggest single influence on where you can go and how fast you can get there. And one of the things that makes 1492 a world-transforming year is that that's the year that Columbus discovered, not America, he didn't discover America as everybody is always pointing out, you know, people had known about it, there were lots of people there. Uh, it wasn't um, that big a deal uh, anyway, because of course when he got there he was terribly disappointed with how poor it was. But what he really did discover was the way the wind system of the Atlantic worked. He decoded this wind system. And the wind system of the Atlantic is of such a nature that it leads the navigator on to the wind systems of the rest of the world. Once you find your way across the Atlantic, you, you find the the westerners of the South Atlantic, which which carry you around the whole globe. That was a very great privilege for Europeans and European explorers. Uh, this is the causeway, it's the highway that leads them to the rest of the world and opens up the possibility of world-encompassing trade and imperialism, which becomes the means by which they establish eventually over a long period of time, to cost terrible, you know, bloodshed and misery, establish kind of world hegemony. Uh, only the the winds made that possible, and really only Europeans were in a position to exploit their full potential. Uh, other great civilizations, the Chinese, the Ottomans, they they were all in in various ways cut off from access to the wind system of the of the world. So that that's why Columbus's voyage is is really of world-changing significance. Everybody focuses on America, but it's all, America's almost, you know, sort of a minor part of a much bigger story. Felipe Fernández Armesto. 1492, the year a while began, is out now in hardback. You'll find full details on ordering the book at blackwell.co.uk.